0: Welcome to Hipcast Episode 180: Your Deeper Dive into All Things Hastings Independent Press.
1: Morning, paper. Come What's all the shouting, paper mister?
0: We have a smorgasbord of different treats for you: Pasha on food, Kent goes to the theatre, Lisa on herself, Hugh on Mad Jack, Fiona on a large yellow tent. And finally, Pete Donohue reads from his recently released collection of poetry. My name is Ben Bruges, and I'm the digital production editor and one of the features co-editors of the Hastings Independent Press. And if you haven't seen it, have a watch of the film I made for HIP about the 108 sun salutations on the beach for the solstice. Have a look on our YouTube channel, um, on Instagram, or our Facebook or website. Hastings Independent recently put out an appeal, and we have volunteer writers, photographers, filmmakers and podcast makers coming forward, which is great. But we always need more. Have a look at the website for the section editor's emails and get in touch. And We always welcome new friends, for the price of a coffee you can help support your community paper. Again, see the website. Plus, why not sign up for the newsletter? Gary has some recommendations waiting for you. But first, let's get tasty. might have noticed in Hastings Independent that we try and keep up with the the food scene for you and of course this ranges from top-end eateries and reviews of wonderful foods and new approaches and and local businesses all the way down to of course we have problems of food poverty um, and various other issues like that so to hear more Um, I'm going to Pasha Milburn, who can tell me about an article that um, one of our writers, Rachel Karasik, wrote called Bags of Taste. So, Pasha, um, this thing called Bags of Taste, what's that about?
2: So, Bags of Taste is a community cookery class, which is um, originally started in London a few years ago. And they ran the first pilot um, was in Hastings in 2017. And it's a sort of it's a four week programme. Where they um, get people to um, learn how to cook um, on a budget. Um, so each meal, I think, is roughly about a pound a head, and they're sort of all easy meals. And the idea is they the idea is that they are similar to sort of takeout food that um, people might people might eat. And so the idea is to pivot from takeouts to sort of learning how to cook your own takeout food in a healthy, cheap way. Bags of taste have re- are normally face to face. And I did some volunteering with them um, back in 2017.
0: Uh, this, okay, Your, yourself you as well. about okay. A, Yeah, yeah. Um, okay.
2: But this, this, this article that Rachel wrote was about how the, the pandemic sort of forced bags of taste to completely change how they offered their classes, which used to be very much hands-on, volunteers assisting people um, and doing demonstrations, to um, a completely new way of working, which um, is completely um, sort of uh, o- online or over the phone. Or through text. So the so it's now called a mentored home cooking course. So uh, right. participants receive a bag of sort of everything they need to cook three meals. Yeah. Um, the meals they're doing at the moment are um, a chana masala, um, an Italian pasta sauce and a Middle Eastern pilaf rice.
0: Oh, and, wow. Um,
2: and yeah, and the dishes—these uh, dishes are dishes—are all vegan, which I assume are to sort of make sure they're inclusive of all different. Yes, types.
0: that that way you're inclusive of everybody. Yeah, yeah. good. Yeah, yeah.
2: But there is an option to sort of incorporate like meat into the recipes, and and the the volunteers who are now called mentors and um, sort of explain to their participants how to do that. Um, the way that Bags of Taste are doing it now is that it's over a two-week period, and the mentors can like talk through recipes and answer questions. Um, as well as sort of sending over like video links and tips about like how to cut an onion sort of the stuff that maybe you need to know that's a lot easier sometimes to explain when you're in the room with someone um, yeah I mean it's yeah it's, work work around of
0: it, it sounds <laughs> like the the, the the kind of things that myself as a parent has completely failed to do as my son is about to go to university <laughs> so it's like hey, I should send him on the course
2: yeah <laughs> no I mean yeah I mean when when I um that was kind of how I got in, interested in cooking. Before I went to uni, actually, um, I hadn't cooked at all. Um, I was really bad at cooking and going to uni forced me to learn how to cook. So I think your son will be hopefully all right.
0: Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> um, but hopefully
2: yeah, you could always, could always do bags of taste. Might be useful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it
0: seems to play into that kind of, I don't know, you, you get kind of um, snobby waitros type, you know, um, people who kind of say, you know, why can't poor people buy um, you know good foods and cook it themselves and all that and don't seem to don't understand how actually that ends up being more expensive there's more waste involved you know there's there's heating costs and you know of um, the cooking utensils and all that. you know yeah. you need equipment and all of that kind of stuff yeah so is I mean, it kind yeah, of yeah. plugging that kind of a gap is it playing into that kind of a debate
2: yeah yeah definitely I think sort of the yeah sort of bags of taste sort of gives people the skills that they need to learn to cook and um, from my experience, when I was volunteering with them quite a few well, a few years ago now, um, it was a really range of people that um, w- w- was at the course. Um, and that kind of range from people that maybe had had some sort of mental health challenges in the past or those that maybe had a physical disability. Um, also, just to quite a lot of sort of older, older participants that um, quite a lot of sort of older men. I don't want to put a stereotype, but just that um, who maybe had had wives that had sadly passed away and they sort of realised they didn't really know how to cook. Um, so it was a whole kind of mixture of people there which was really interesting and I mean I think that's what I liked but when I'd volunteered when it was face-to-face. It was so nice so
0: to- did, did did you find it rewarding yourself?
2: Yeah so I obviously I didn't take, I didn't take part in the course but I um, was there as like a volunteer mentor. Yeah
0: mm-hmm. no but there. did you find it rewarding being a volunteer I mean?
2: It was a really re- rewarding experience for me I think it also really helped build my interest in sort of working with food yeah so I, I had I, I did the volunteering right after I'd finished my undergraduate which had been in a completely different topic um, and sort of spent that year exploring what I wanted to do as well as sort of part-time working. Yeah volunteering with Bags of Taste sort of showed me how food can sort of well bring people together but also like bring a lot of joy to people's lives who um, and I think that was what with Bags of Taste it not only sort of gave people important skills it also gave that social sort of aspect
0: yes yeah, so it's like don't just give me bread give me roses as well kind of thing yeah yeah which, yeah. Is, which, which is lovely uh, you, you know the thing I worry about with such brilliant ideas like this is what kind of scale is it because I bet the level of need for people who could benefit from that is much bigger than a, what I'm assuming is a small-scale charity can cope with
2: so the article that Rachel wrote touches on um, she, she spoke so that the current um coordinator of the course is a woman called Jo Durkin. Um and Jo is um always eager for people to get in contact with her. You can get in contact with her um at hastings at bagsoftaste.org. Um, okay,
0: we'll put that in the link. yeah yep. But
2: Joe Jo Jo spoke to Rachel about um how a lot of the participants now come through referrals, but that they are open to anyone on a low budget. And I think what's probably particularly good with the fact that it has pivoted to a more of an online um, sort of is that the courses are probably now open to a much wider group of people. Um, where, where, when I had volunteered, when it was face to face, I think it was about, we had about 20, 20 to 30 people per sort of course, uh, yeah. per sort of session. Yeah. And, um, obviously there's always more people that might, um, that, that, that might, might need that support and, and want to get involved. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure sort of, how many people they are working with yeah. now But um, you,
0: you can scale this up I guess if you're doing it online yeah, so so it's interesting so here we are Pasha we've got Pasha the nearly university student who couldn't cook and <laughs> now you've ended up as the food editor of Hastings Independent Press yeah the world is know. strange isn't it
2: <laughs> yeah it's quite strange I think well I, I mean I think yeah uni did really sort of open my eyes to the mm-hmm. fact that I enjoyed cooking um, which kind of then led to me after I graduated, yeah, d- getting involved with food stuff. And then I went and did a master's where I actually did my, um, did my research on bread. <laughs> I did oh, my, okay. on my, my anthropology okay. research on uh, sourdough bread, um, oh, okay. looking at the sort of the inequalities surrounded about that. So, um, right. yeah, so doing the kind of food editing role was just kind of a continuation of being able to sort yeah. of keep my interest in food and sort of writing about food and thinking about food.
0: So um, are you looking for new writers or new people to help with food?
2: Yeah, section? definitely. So at the moment, how food uh, the food work team works is that we have a team of about uh, three or four writers. Um, and obviously, as HIP is in uh, voluntary, we, we're always keen to sort of work people's schedules. Um, and so we would love, we'd always love more writers, um, particularly, yeah, if you're a food writer, um, do get in touch um, with quite open to sort of what you want to write about we, we have some writers in the food team that are more interested in um drinking um like well <laughs> drinking writing about drinking and maybe drinking <laughs> now. and also those that are more interested in writing interviews or writing recipes so whatever your skills um there's a place for you um, right food so, food. <laughs> so so
0: everything from reviewing like restaurant experiences to food poverty or serious issues about food so anything yeah, definitely. Like it's
2: basically the full spectrum. It's always really nice to have a kind of mix of mix of articles and a mix of experience and thoughts um, on the page. So,
0: and of course, it's all going to open up again and be fun once again. Let's hope.
2: Yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of quite exciting new openings which are coming um, to, to to Hastings and St Leonard's. Uh, me and the food team keep seeing new new arrivals every week that we're sort of madly trying to interview and write about. So yeah, it's a definitely a really exciting time. Um, to be writing about food in Hastings, I think.
0: Okay, brilliant. So I I think we'll leave that as a dangling teaser and people (laughs) will need to keep reading the paper to find out more.
2: Yeah, definitely. Dot, dot, (laughs) dot.
0: Thank you for your time, Pasha.
2: That's all right.
0: So, thus refreshed, time for the theatre. Okay, I'm here with Kent, and Kent, this is the second time we've actually sat together in like a whole year, this is becoming a habit, this yeah. is quite unusual. Um, actually being in the same physical space is somewhat of, you know, an unusual experience these days, and of course that aspect of theatre that is probably most important, isn't it, is it? being in the same space and experiencing the same thing with with an audience. And um, I understand that recently you've actually been to an actual theatrical experience, is that right?
3: Yes, it's interesting because uh, it was the first time I think that they've been performing for, for over a year because of the lockdown. And uh, they were doing it very carefully. They were doing it uh, outside uh, the house. It, it's a very, Explore the Arch, which is the name of the theatre company, is a really unusual and uh, fascinating uh, organisation. Uh, they perform in a domestic house uh, in St. Leonard's, in a, in a leafy back street of St. Leonard's. It's a big, uh, rambling house. And normally you can walk around from room to room uh, and see what's going on in different rooms. This was different because you can't... They, couldn't have people wandering around in in the house so they did it all outside now the thing about this was and and I, you may think I'm a bit peculiar but I, I have a fascination with what goes on in 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 houses as as you drive down a street and you see the curtains twitching perhaps as people look out i want to look in and i not a peeping Tom or anything like that but but I'm fascinated by what's going on inside um, uh, people and people's lives and, well, and well, things like that
0: yeah you're not alone I'm always very grateful to people that don't have you know kind of huge great curtains <laughs> and, and things like that. Just living rooms, like you, I'm not a beeping tom. But just to experience, you know, people's domestic space is, is really interesting,
3: yeah. Well, that, that's what I thought. And, and anyway, the point about this production is that it gives licence to that curiosity that, that, that you uh, and, and I have and I think a lot of others would do. Because we are invited to sit outside the house at looking at the windows and, uh, and looking into the, the uh, performance space, if you like. So that's really quite unusual. Um, uh, of course, one of the clever things they've done is to have uh, curtains going across the windows, so you can't see anything when you arrive except the curtained windows.
0: OK, so let me just clarify this in my own head. So the audience is sitting outside, but the performers are inside the house.
3: Exactly that. Right. And the, the audience is sitting in groups of six, so as to right. keep social distance. and and to all the rules Um, so you you, you move uh, you you arrive and you're uh, taken to one part of the house uh, and you are sat looking through the windows. Now, the first one that, that I looked through, the, the, the curtains were drawn, and slowly uh, the performer inside drew back the curtains uh, to reveal this, uh, this, this, this actor who was arranging flowers uh, in bowls, and there was a big pool inside the the house, which we'll come onto in a moment, and uh, a fascinating uh, vision, because the, the the window itself distorts slightly what you 're seeing, uh, and she was also hiding behind these sort of great bell jars that she was putting ink into uh, part of the of the working of the, of, of the play, the writing of the play and uh, and flowers uh, etc. Now, I think we need to pause here and, and go back about nine hundred years uh, to uh, a French uh, woman called Marie de France uh, who was Nobody knows very much about her, except she wrote these extraordinary things called lays. They were narrative poems. Uh, this is 200 years before Chaucer, incidentally. Um, she worked probably in um, uh, in a monastery or, or in, a, in an enclosed, in a nunnery, enclosed area. Uh, we think she may have been a scribe to have written this, but she came up with these extraordinary, um, fascinating tales, um, narrative poems. And what's happened is that the, the theatre company, Explore the Arch, have, have taken um, three of them, and only just tiny elements of three of them, and put them together in, in this production. So what we are being given is uh, uh, not only looking into the windows of this world, but into the, the, the world of Marie de France 900 years ago.
0: That's really fascinating. So she's probably from the kind of troubadour romance, kind of pre Chaucerian.
3: Yes, British, I don't. I think she was more of a of, of a monastic sort of person, okay. but we don't know much about her. I mean, I'm sure that, that there are there are feminist uh, scholars, and uh, medieval scholars, uh, who know much more than I do about her. Uh, frankly, I didn't. I'd never heard of her until I went no. to this play. So yes. this was an eye opener for me, and I did yes. a little bit of research. But I, I think the answer is not much is is known about her. Anyway, she came up with the with these various tales. The first one was uh, Guigemar uh, on the flower stage. Now. Uh, the flower stage being, as I said, the the pool that we're looking into. Um, the tale itself is told is recorded, and there 's a speaker outside, so as we 're sitting in our in our chairs outside the windows, we can hear the the, the tale being told and we are watching inside and uh, although its obviously there weren 't violins uh, nine hundred years ago we, we have a violinist performing, and she perches over the pool playing her violin and the, and the tale is told um, i don 't think i will, will go much into the details of the, of the tale except it 's about a a, a a knight who couldn't uh, couldn't get to, to grips with courtly love uh, and what what happened to him then. If you want to know more about it, go back and remarry to France. Well, exactly,
0: exactly. but um, let me just clarify a couple of things that occur to me here. It sounds somewhere between. It's not really narrative theatre. This is it. It's it's more like uh, an installation or conceptual art or something. Would you say or theatrical conceptual?
3: To be honest, it's not like anything I've ever seen before. I was absolutely knocked out. I was, you know, because in, in a good way. Oh, absolutely! I I'm Fascinated. It was one of the most interesting, entertaining evenings I can remember for okay. uh, for a long time.
0: Uh, okay. So the other thing is you're saying there's three rooms. Mm. Um, is there sequencing about it or does, you know, does the audience...
3: The audience moves around in a clockwise direction. Each performer, there are three performers, and each performer does three performances to the different audience. So um, uh, you know it—it's it, it, random. You can go at any; you, it doesn't matter where you start. Yeah. You're getting a part of a tale. but You
0: are getting the whole thing, kind of.
3: Yes, thing, and yes, and then yes. and so so after we'd seen this one, we then move around to the front of the house, where imaginatively they'd produce these throne-like chairs um, uh, in in line six of six chairs with cloth coverings and little fairy lights, absolutely beautiful. And the and th- this this one, the, the the actor opens these big windows, climbs out, puts the the, puts the set around um, and and just makes the, and then then you peer in and the the director uh, Gail is a is a is a puppeteer by 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 training I think or certainly she's puppeteer and she's created some wonderful puppets which you look at as you see and all sorts of you know odd uh, domestic things colanders and even the toilet brush and stuff are pressed into service as, as, and, and put on strings and stuff to, 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 to animate what's, what's going on in front okay. of
0: you Now I would be remiss because I know exactly what the audience is thinking you are outside the house you're looking through the window inside the house and the previous theatrical thing you were talking about mentioned a pool inside the house Mm,
3: yes, well, I don't want to give too much away. Although, although we're <laughs> we talking water, are we are we certainly, we are certainly, we are certainly talking water. And if you think of uh, of Ophelia, I think it's Millet's uh, portrait of Ophelia, yeah, yeah. then you might get some idea of what I'm hinting at. But in case the production comes back on, which I really hope it does, because it's it's so magical, um, I, I won't actually say what what happened. It happens also
0: to reminded it. me of a Blake poem that I can't remember, but where water is stained with. The With, pen or the, well, the or, uh, that, that's what I that thought was aspect, fascinating. Yeah. This was
3: this, this lovely thing. Yes, uh, I mean in the, in the third one, uh, you know, ironically, um, a, a typewriter is produced, and and and, and the actor types away uh, on it, uh, completely, uh, obviously idiosyncratically, and that's not the right word, and, and and anachronistically, I think. Oh gosh, that's a that's a mouthful. Um, and uh, but then throws the typewriter away and pulls out a, 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 a quill pen and starts starts writing again, and start. so you, you've got all these marvelous. Things going on at the same time um, you 're looking through windows the, la- the last one I was just talking about was actually in a, in a coal bunker outside the, the side of the house. You go around to the side of the house, you sit down you 're not looking into the house you 're looking into into a coal bunker, but the windows of a coal bunker and again imaginatively she opens the, the windows, hangs parchments on them inside as you see she 's creating a bedroom, and, and this tale is, is extraordinary. Did did you know that werewolves were were known about and, and being written about nine hundred thousand years ago? I had no idea. I thought it was a modern thing. I thought it was something that the that you know Lon Chaney had invented in the in the, in the films of the thirties. But no, uh, the, the, the Marie de France is writing about a, a man who turns uh, into a werewolf and disappears off uh, a, 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 at night three nights a week, uh, and his wife gets a bit suspicious about what's going on. Not entirely surprisingly, I think many might, might, <laughs> might, might do, and asks him and he says, no, I've turned into a werewolf and she isn't very keen on this and she wants to stop it so um, she finds out that the thing that, that distinguishes the, the, the transformation are his clothes, he leaves his clothes behind, so she steals his clothes well this means that he's now trapped as a werewolf um, and uh, uh, I think this enables her to go off and pursue uh, other um, dalliances, and indeed she marries somebody else because he doesn't come back. But the werewolf goes to the king and to the king's court, and is such a, a sweetie that he endears himself to to them in his werewolf capacity uh, that they take him in. And only years later do they do they find the clothes that she discarded. Give them back to him, and he turns back into the in, into the person. And uh, well,
0: <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think I think you know your enthusiasm for it and your enjoyment of it comes through really clearly at all. Just so that the key things to look out for. This one was called Spirited. Yes. The theatre company is
3: called um, Explore the Arch.
0: Explore uh, the Arch. Do yes. you know? Have they got any plans for anything in the future? Uh, they they well,
3: they 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 are a regular theatre company. They've done a number they're of these productions. The based based in St Leonard's in in this house, yep. and that's what they do. um the uh, director, Gail Borrow, is the, is the, is the key uh, person in this. I just need to mention that the performers, um, Alice Beadle, uh, is the violinist, the musician from the first one. Uh, Alison Cooper is the dancer uh, for the second one. And Erica Smith uh, is the visual artist who, who does, the, does the third one. Well, and I also need to mention
0: that Gail Borrow was interviewed in our previous podcast so people who are interested in 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 this need to go back and and listen to and i think what she's talking about there is setting up the performance and you know the, the countdown to it and all of that so we've now had the beginning and the end the review thank you ever so much Kent. no welcome This edition of Hipcast has been mainly me, and you're used to Lisa Golden's voice. Um, So I've got Lisa here, and I thought this might be a good chance just to hear a little bit more. Basically, Lisa moved to Hastings, I think, something like half a year ago.
4: No, not even. I think it was in uh, March this year.
0: So that's Mm -hmm. what? I can't do the math. (laughs) <laughs> As so it's about three months ago anyway, so you, you, you came to Hastings you got in touch and you have brought considerable journalism and podcast experience to us which we are so grateful for and it would be great if all incomers to Hastings thought and also people that lived in Hastings thought, oh great, we have a community newspaper let's support it, let's do something good and you've been doing some wonderful podcasts so far, so thank you so much for that um, perhaps you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself
4: yeah well thanks ben um yeah i just figured you know with um moving to a new place it's always you know volunteering is always a great way to get to know people in your your hometown and um to get involved and i just thought you know i've I've volunteered throughout my life but i just i started following hip on instagram uh to try and you know get a little bit of sense of what the town is like and i saw that they were calling for volunteers and i just thought you know um it's not that often that you can bring your the skills that you already have to to your volunteering. So I thought, you know what, I'll go make myself useful somewhere. Um, yeah, so my background is I'm from South Africa, which is where the accent comes from. But I have been working as a journalist since I left university. Um, I've spent time in the Middle East. Uh, so I started in Johannesburg, which is where I'm from. I worked in the Middle East for a while, moved to London in 2016. Uh, and I've worked at places like The Guardian and Al Jazeera and Huffington Post. And yeah, now I'm a freelancer, which I I made the decision to become a freelancer uh, in March twenty twenty, which was not the best timing in the world. It's <laughs> a
0: great timing. Yeah. 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 Great
4: timing. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm getting there. I'm finding my feet. For any freelancers out there, they always say it takes takes about a year and that is true. So
0: <laughs> Yeah, and it's very much up and down to begin with. Very rocky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, indeed. Um and you have your own podcast which I've been following with interest for and um since I heard about. Um, it's storyteller with Lisa Golden, and because yes. there's lots of storyteller type podcasts, if you put Lisa Golden into search in Spotify or Apple or whatever you're using, um, then it'll come up quite easily. Yeah.
4: Um, I, I have to, that... I have to, I have to say, I was very loath to call it storyteller with Lisa Golden. It was just storyteller for the first season and a half of its life. But exactly what you said, um, if you if you Google it, it's almost impossible to find. So. Please don't think i'm an awfully vain uh, person i just added it on so that people could actually find it. <laughs> well
0: it doesn't it doesn't come across as vain and um you have a co-host i think usually
4: yeah okay, i i do i like to interview storytellers from all stripes from all over the world and after about a season a lot of the feedback i was getting was from people who actually want you know want to tell stories writers filmmakers you know um, young creatives and they actually the feedback I was getting is some people would want some more concrete tips on the actual you know the actual the art of storytelling so i work with an old colleague of mine um is a wonderful woman called kathy swan who lives in newcastle now she's from newcastle um and she runs a fantastic organization called queer creatives uk and we're both just we 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 used to work together and we used to just yak 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 about like films and books and movies and and all the bits and bobs so yeah we 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 do i call them storyteller basics in between the main interviews where we discuss like story structure and how to write characters and all those sort of fun things
0: brilliant and um yeah and you you look at some of the storytelling classic um texts and all that kind of stuff um and then in betu- as you say your the the main podcast is interviews with very various, various types of storytellers and the latest one i think is a druid
4: yes yes um philip cargom who um just last year stepped down as being the leader of the druids in the uk he he, he led them for a very long time And yeah, it's a fascinating, long-winding conversation about how we find um, spirituality in modern life, especially for millennials who have sort of left uh, traditional religion in droves, but are still sort of seeking a way of finding meaning, and especially with the climate crisis, sort of finding connection in nature. So yeah, it was a great conversation.
0: Talking about nature, I think you've been exploring the salt flats outside Hastings, have you, or or that kind of... Yeah. Yeah.
4: The salt marshes, Sean, sure, you got me. That's what I'm on deadline for today. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: there you go. There's I, the life I, of a freelancer. Yeah. I found
4: them. I found them very charming until I was right up against the deadline. But um, yeah, so I've been exploring um, for for climate-based story, learning more about salt marshes, which, as you rightly said, there's there's some in Rye. Um, yeah, really fascinating about how we need to protect them. They're huge carbon sinks. Um, they okay. act as natural sea defenses, which is obviously incredibly interesting for us coastal communities. Yep. And um, they just host; they're a host to an incredibly wide variety of of um, wildlife. And they've they've been they're under huge pressure. So definitely interesting if anyone wants to find out how we need to protect our coastal habitats salt marshes are it's only really going to be out at like the end of july
0: okay well look why don't we just why don't we just remember and mention it in a future hipcast because i think people would be interested because of course you know there's a lot of salt marshes there's a lot of reclaimed Mm. land around us and of course sea rise is going to be a huge problem for hastings but anyway enough about you lisa have you got anything (laughs) for us this week
4: Yes, so um, you took the reins this week, but I, I still managed to get my one little interview in. <laughs> <even> though, <laughs> um, uh, and I spoke to our uh, news and politics editor, Hugh, about um, a little bit of controversy around the Fuller's Follies, which a few people may know from some tourist sites around Hastings.
0: Right, so this is, I, I'm not scared of saying this is Mad Jack Fuller.
4: Hi, Hugh, thanks for joining us. Could you start off by telling me? What Fuller's Follies are?
5: If you go for a walk in the countryside around Brightling, you'll see all sorts of strange buildings, usually at prominent places, so they can be seen from a long way. And they were built by the landowner of the time around two centuries ago, Jack Fuller. And there's a temple and there's an observatory and there's a mausoleum and various other things. And I think the, the, the point, the, they're called follies because they have no purpose.
4: Okay.
5: That's what makes them particularly uh, ripe for what they mean to be investigated, because you know, in a sense, they don't mean anything in themselves.
4: Understood. And um, I saw from your PC it's known as John Mad Jack Fuller. So, um, and then also, so the reason we have a piece on it in the paper this week is um, a part of uh, this sort of colorful character's history is that he was, uh, I believe the, the term used was sort of a known drunk and outspoken supporter of slavery. So that's brought up questions about how we tell stories about things like this. And you attended a, um, I believe it was a Zoom call where people were debating what.
5: There was a, it was a best part of two hours debate uh, with various people talking about both Mr. Fuller and his career as, uh, I mean, I think he had two objectionable connections. One is that a lot of his money came from slave estates in Jamaica, though, to be fair, uh, also came from ironworks in East Sussex. And secondly, because he was an MP who seems to have gone out of his way to oppose abolition of slavery. So he took an active part in supporting Slavery.
4: So then um, you used the title for the piece was Fuller Must Fall, I think sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek, is that right? Just refer- referencing these these larger arguments, conversations that we're having about like Rhodes must fall. And...
5: Quite a clever phrase, but unfortunately not mine. Mm-hmm. It was, um, I think, um, uh, one or more of the campaigners. Um, okay. And it, apart from being nicely alliterative, yes, it ties in with similar campaigns about other dodgy characters of history.
4: Could you tell me a little bit about some of the ideas that were discussed in that event? It
5: dealt with previous biographies of Fuller, and I think the idea was not to try to raise a campaign to pull these follies down, but to have a different introduction to them in in the in the tourist literature, so that people see them as in a sense, monuments to this less acceptable description of, of Mr Fuller. Um, but there was also, the, the uh, seminar also actually dealt with, and I didn't have time to cover this, a visit from the Queen of Haiti just after the Haitian Revolution when the first ex-slave black republic in the Caribbean, there was a black queen and she came visited Hastings. And I think there's a campaign... Um, led by Dawn Dublin, to have blue plaques put up and put something positive about uh, black people of the time.
4: I guess it's just including, it's a sort of a history that's not traditionally been included. So maybe it's not so much rewriting, it's just a broadening to include the many stories that haven't been included in the writing so far. Yes, I think that's fair. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Hugh. And uh, we will see you next time on the Hipcast.
0: Okay. Thanks, Lisa. When you saw your latest copy of HIP, you might have noticed a big yellow tent like structure um, on the front page that has bamboo supports and yellow sails. I'm joined by Fiona McGarry, who's um, one of the two arts editors of the paper. Perhaps, Fiona, you can explain.
1: Okay, so the big yellow structure on the beach, it's at Rye Harbour, is called the Beacon. And it's um, an installation that's been, that's part of the climate art platform, which is running in Rye at the moment. It looks quite stunning. You can see it from a long way away. It's it's bright yellow. It, it originally looked very like the poppies that were, were growing around it, the same colour.
0: Oh, what, yellow poppies? Yellow
1: poppies, so yes, Okay lovely installation in the middle of all all the poppies I think they're over now but it it still looks quite stunning
0: okay and this this is in this is in Rye people might not be aware that we that Hastings Independent Press covers Rye and we go as far the other way to um, Bexhill do we
1: yes that's right we do I mean it's actually at Rye Harbour which is uh I suppose a bit closer to Hastings but um yeah, it's well worth a trip out there because it's absolutely beautiful.
0: So we've got a huge great tent made with bamboo with yellow sails. What, yes. what's the point?
1: It's made from sustainable bamboo. It's it's linked to the residency. One of the there are three artists who are involved in a multidisciplinary art residency, which is linked to Bridgepoint Rye. And Sussex Wildlife Trust. And one of the artists is Joseph Williams. He built the, the beacon with a lot of help from apparently from local engineers. The theme was transience and ephemerality, okay, uh, which was inspired by Camber Castle. Um, so it, it's to highlight the transience and impermanence of our familiar way of life and that's why it's, it's made of sustainable materials
0: okay so so i guess you can't get more in um transient than than, than a tent i suppose <laughs> yes so so is is the point is it an uh, an art object is it a, a demonstration of sustainable building is it like a combination
1: maybe i think it's a combination i think the aim of the climate art um residency it is to bring together different people, different groups and, and different disciplines. So it's got socio-ecological researchers, environmentalists, architects and, and uh, filmmakers all involved with this project. There's also an, an exhibition called a vanished sea without a trace. They've all been involved in each other's work. So somebody's made a a film of the building of the beacon. So they've kind of all sort of borrowed things from from each other, I think.
0: So it sounds like there's now yet another reason to go and visit Rye. (laughs) Well, or, or, you know, residents in Rye, of course, themselves um, might relate to this thing. But so... It's also a very exposed area. Is is this thing safe?
1: Well, apparently, do you remember we had a really severe storm? Yeah. Um, Gale Force 8 storm. Um, and apparently they were quite delighted because it withstood that storm without any damage. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's the AK-2 engineers that, that have supported... Um, joseph while well, he was okay sounds like i need the, it. Uh,
0: yeah sounds like i need the ak2 engineers to build me my <laughs> new house on the, on, on the hill if they can make a tent survivor force eight do you know how long it's going to be there for when 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 do people have to get there do uh,
1: i'm not sure how long the installation is going to be there but the the exhibition to sea without a trace is open till 25th of july um oh not long point. Okay. No, so people, people the, have got the, about the a two of. The open. I mean, you can just go there anytime. You yes. Know, you can sit under it when you go to the beach All to right. get a bit of shade. Right. It's amazing the sort of dappled light you get when when you're underneath it. So
0: that sounds amazing. It sounds like a, a tent that works on shingle as well.
1: Yes, it's it, it's certainly got very um, strong. Uh, I don't say guy ropes. I don't know what you call it. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> suppose guy ropes.
0: <laughs> yes 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 okay speak soon then thank oh, you
1: actually the exhibition's only open on saturday and sunday so it'll have to be next weekend if you if you go to that
0: right there we go okay so next weekend here's something to visit but the beacon you can visit at any time yeah. and you know who open knows maybe shelf, it'll, yeah maybe it'll just be up until a force nine gale blows it down <laughs> Thank you very much, Fiona. Speak soon. Uh, In the last copy of HIP, there was a review of a poetry book called Swallowing Paragoric Babies by Pete Donoghue. The review's written by one of our writers, Nick Pelling, and um, I'm now here with Pete. Um, But I thought maybe to start off, Pete, I would read the first paragraph of his review because it quite struck me.
6: Hi, Ben. That sounds good.
0: Okay, so here we go. It is sometimes thought wrongly that poetry is a polite art form. One has only to think of the title of Radio 4's poetry programme, Poetry Please, as if poetry were a cucumber sandwich served in an Edwardian tea room. The recent collection of poems by local writer, artist and poet Pete Donahue, has utterly nothing of that about it. Rather, it is a collection of badly behaved poems, often flinging guts and bodily fluids in the face of the reader. Well, that's quite some introduction, Pete. How did you respond to that? I'll go
6: with that. Yeah, I think it yeah. was... Uh... He, 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 he's obviously read all the
0: poems and he, he, he gets that collection. It's a, it's a very striking um, review and, and, and book of poems. Um, how, how did it come about?
6: My published poetry started probably three years ago. Uh, I've been doing lots of performance poetry before that, which I think you have to do before you stand any chance of getting published. Um My publishing has always been in the Alternative Press underground slash outlaw poetry scene, which is bigger than a lot of people may imagine. So I started off with um, a chapbook published by uh, Analog Submission Press, who are based in New York and South Africa, and two more chapbooks after that, and loads of poetries and short stories, Published digitally throughout Britain, Europe, and the USA, and people pick up on it, and a community starts to form. Or I joined a community that already exists, I should really say. And uh, I was contacted uh, last year by a publisher in Maryland, the USA, um, asking if I'd like to do a full collection for them, and. Soaring
0: Paragoric Babies is it. Wow, and so so they got in touch with you, you weren't hassling them for years or... No, 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 no,
6: no. Uh, <laughs> unlike mainstream poetry scene, which is absolutely tiny and pretty impossible for anybody to get into, um, I didn't do any hassling at all. I mean, I haven't done hassling them like, Poetry over the years, uh, but uh, once I discovered the underground scene, everything suddenly changed, which, and it's been fantastic ever since.
0: Oh, that's, that's really good. Um, he goes on to say there's a brutal honesty to your poems. Would it be possible, maybe, could you choose a poem that you could read to us that might give um, listeners some idea of what your poetry is like? A lot of
6: my themes are based around kind of dark, unfortunate sides of society. I, I should say. So I mean, there's a lot of poems about you know, drugs, exploitation, poverty, refugees, people down on their luck. Uh, but I, I do do love poems as well, and uh, maybe I'll read you the love poem a little bit okay. later. I mean, I've, I've got a short a short one here that's just yep. towards the beginning of. Uh, The collection, and it's uh, it's inspired by refugees. I'll uh, I'll say no more about it and let the uh, listeners uh, make what they will of it. It's called Bleeding Hearts. I don't know where they came from. I know even less about where they hope to get to. Their blood spills from unimaginable depths. Cold bodies staining this cum scorched. Dirt with cryptic ciphers and strange sugars, so within seconds, legions of insects are all over it, like chilli peppers on legs, runaway heat, pain of the moment, void of the future, wash of all untamed seas. And those unknown traits new deserts, they drag their hearts behind them on pieces of braid string. Their blood spills. I don't know where they came from. I know even less about where they hope to get to.
0: That's interesting. It follows on from a theme actually we've been having in the features in the in the paper, because we've 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 been um looking at the experience of refugees in a couple of um feature articles that people might want to go back. One of the things I was going to ask you was that um, Nick Pelling says in his review. Um, One assumes that the need for pain relief comes from sources in Donahue's own life story. There are a few explicit flashes of his life experience, but there's also a certain Dylan-esque conjuring up of characters and probable splicing together of episodes. And in a way, it's a question I am completely uninterested in. But I think it's a question that the listeners are interested in. I suppose, you know, it's where where, where does the... You know, people ask you know, are these all your experiences, as if the experiences of drug use and refugees and being homeless and using alcohol or whatever doesn't exist in the world. Sure. But I, but, but I guess it's, is it an asking you for authenticity or something, do you think?
6: <laughs> well, if you read the poems carefully, you can probably work out what, how much of it is me and how much of it is things I've observed and how much of it I may have slightly exaggerated or conjoined different stories and experiences to make it more of a striking poem. But uh, yeah, you know, I've had a lot of shit in my life and I did have an extremely difficult childhood and um, you know, I've had lots of experience of themes that I write about, such as, as drugs, suicide, you know, et etc. Et, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I'm I'm not making it up, <laughs> and I'm not looking down on people. I'm I'm, I'm writing from a level that uh, I have experienced and know extremely well, and um, I work in those areas as well, you know, as well as my own personal experience of of mental illness within family and friends, suicide,
0: etc., etc. I
6: I, I also work in in that area uh, in my day job.
0: Well, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I was going to say you're also the literature editor for Hastings Independent, um, and I'm just mentioning that because we um, on HIP actually had to persuade you to mention this book and to allow us to review it and things like this um, because I think you felt maybe the people might perceive a conflict of interest or something like that. Um, and I'm not interested in that, but what I am interested in is... Does the other stuff you do with literature, you know, like reviews, like dealing with um, other writers and so on, does that come from a similar place as your poetry or are they just two completely separate worlds that you can jump between? I mean, how, how, how do you kind of match those two things?
6: I, I do the literature pages, as I always have done for whatever it is now, nine
0: years, probably. Is it nine years? Right. <laughs> yeah, I <think> so.
6: <laughs> because I want to create a vehicle for people like me or, or, or more me as I as I was uh, earlier in my life who uh, who don't have a, 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 an opportunity to express themselves in the mainstream. And we started up as, a, as an alternative newspaper, really. And, uh, and, and so... You know, I welcome any anything in literature. I mean, space is, space is tight, but I, I love publishing poets uh, who have never seen their work in print before. Um, you know, that, that that really gives me a, 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 a buzz, and I want to help people do that, um, as people have helped me do that in the past. Uh, I will say, please do submit your poems to to Hip Uh, We haven't had a Poetry Corner for a few issues now, but uh, we will again soon. But I will say to poets, because I I get a lot of really long poems that we just can't accommodate in the pages. Yeah, just be realistic. (laughs) If you want a poem published, keep it short and keep lines short, and then you've got much, much more of a chance of, of... yeah, of seeing it in print. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah. I welcome anything, you know. I am short stories. I, I, I guess
0: I, I guess I'm slightly surprised that um, you know, the COVID and people being on lockdown and stuff like that hasn't produced like a flood of poetry or other writing.
6: Yeah, me too. I mean, maybe because you know we were out of print for a while, so maybe people weren't quite as aware of us as they had been before. Or are becoming again now yep. um, but but I, I you know I must say people send me kind of reams of stuff that there's just no chance that that could possibly be published in a, a local community newspaper, so they're yeah. sending it to the wrong place really <laughs> yes but, so uh, but keep, send us send send short stuff,
0: <laughs> and i'll 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 do my best to to get it in you know. So keep it short and sweet, but not necessarily sweet. Exactly. Well, look, how about we, you, you did mention that there's also a love poem there. How, how about we end on something more upbeat, I think you were saying, and positive and romantic, maybe. Okay,
6: so this is, uh, it, it is a love poem, and it's particularly about um, long-term commitment and um, you know, how uh we can find the right relationship, we can go through all kinds of uh struggles and and uh, still we don't it's called We Stay Together. I cut her breast, we scrape bones, slot slotted together, twin absinthe spoons, drip, drip sugar cubism rush, fairy swirl Lalouche engulfs, this thin sheet shrouds us in each other's mystery, streaked with uranus, yellow morning. through the blind, the sick, the crippled, weak and vulnerable, arms for the poor, drinks and emotions, alchemical potions, our mega-hearts beat together, Irregularly, stirring, stirring, from half-sleep helix, The shudder of love, when truly exchanged, Unidentified energies scream and relax, A coming together of partial nervous systems, Like separate subway lines, joined for the journey, District and circle, circle and district, each stop a chance to draw breath and share a new destination my fingers twitch she strokes them steady the twist of her lips pre raphaelite heaven her rose hips cushion my fragile bones as sunlight stretches across the room illuminating ever new shades of her hair rivers of copper silver and gold Each strand a new prospect, glistening with hope. We breathe, we breathe. This future is ours as it was in the beginning. And together we own this past. Skin to skin, thought to thought, child to adult. We stay together.
0: Pete, an absolute pleasure. Thank you. So that was Pete Donahue. Don't forget that um, Hastings Independent Press welcomes your poetry and short fiction. Remember Pete's advice to keep it short, but not necessarily sweet. And you can get signed copies of his book, Swallowing Paragoric Babies, from Bookbusters, Printed Matter, The Hastings Bookshop, and The Bookkeeper, and support your local bookstore. Pete Donoghue there, finishing off this episode of Hipcast. See you next time.
1: Boring paper. Come on, What's go? all the
0: shouting?